Exodus 34, 4 to 7. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets, like the first ones, and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. He pro- As he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Thanks. So when um, I was born, my parents had two names in mind for me. I was either going to be called Victoria or I was going to be called Hannah. Here's my baby photos. Look at my dad's face. (laughs) Shocked. (laughs) What is this small thing I'm now responsible for? I was the second child. It's It's not even like new information for him. Um, So I was either going to be a Victoria or a Hannah, and my mum takes great pleasure in saying to people that I was either going to be a sicky Vicky or a honky Hannah. I have no idea what those things... Obviously, I know what sicky Vicky means, but I I genuinely don't know what honky Hannah means. Um, And they'd pretty much uh, set on Victoria. That was going to be my name. And then I came out, and they looked at me, and they went, nope, she's not a Vicky, she's a Hannah. She's a honky Hannah. And that was how I was named, really biblical Christian principles. My parents aren't Christians, so why would they choose anything else? Um, and we had a kind of a similar experience when we were naming our youngest child, who's now six. We um, had lots of names written out. We knew that he was a boy before um, he was born. Um, and so we suggested lots of names, and then we vetoed lots of names. So Luke liked Bartholomew, and that got vetoed very quickly. No offense if you like that name. Um, I liked Logan. That got vetoed very quickly by Luke, mostly because said in a York accent, it would be Logan, and we've already got a Morgan, so that would have been a little bit weird. So eventually, we ended up with kind of a name that neither of us particularly loved, but neither of us hated, which was Harrison. And we decided, okay, this is going to be his name. He's going to be Harrison. Got really excited about it. We didn't want to tell anyone until he was born, but some friends were visiting from London, and we decided to tell them. Uh, so we were having dinner, and we said, yeah, he's going to be Harrison. And we just looked at each other, and we were like, no, that's not his name. That's so weird. <laughs> that's just not his name. And if you know Aaron, you know that's, that's not, he's not Harrison. Um, and so names are important, aren't they? And that's why we're doing this series at this moment, that, at the moment that God has a name, because... God has a name, and his name is Yahweh, and that is important, and it's important that we know that, and we know what that means, because your name isn't just a name, it also tells us a little bit about who you are, we come to know you by that name, we come to know each other by our characteristics, and our name is associated to that. So when um, when God, when Yahweh reveals himself as Yahweh, I think we've got a rattling blind, we're going to try and sort it out, yes, the Holy Spirit... Um, So when Yahweh says, when he introduces himself as Yahweh, and he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. Um, That is really, really important. That is a brilliant description of Yahweh. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And we're going to be talking today about those three words in the middle, slow to anger. But before I get into that, because 
anger can be a little bit of a like a hot topic. Like some people, as soon as they say anger, you might have a picture of like a head teacher or a strict parent or something like that. And so you, you might be thinking anger is not a good thing. I'm not sure if I want to know God who's who's angry. I think it's really important that it comes in the middle of that sentence, that it's like sandwiched between compassionate and gracious and abounding in love and faithfulness. And so I just kind of wanted to start by saying God is all of those things all of the time. He's not like us. Like, I don't know if, you, if you're like this, but I am gracious and compassionate. I am gracious and compassionate. I am gracious. I am compassionate. And now I'm angry. Yeah? That's not Yahweh, thankfully. Like, Yahweh is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and rich in love all of the time. He's all of those things all of the time. Um, and the, uh, the original Greek for, uh, for that bit um, is erek apeim. Um, so could you all just do me a favor and make the angriest face possible? Like look really angry, look at each other, snarl at each other, get angry with each other, okay? And then, for some of you this is uncomfortable, I never get angry. Okay, and then do the opposite. That's good, Josiah. Then do the opposite, like make yourself look as not angry as possible. Not like I'm trying not to be angry, but genuinely not angry. Yeah, we smile and everything. And what do we notice about our faces when we do that? When we get angry, our noses get shorter, don't they? We squinkle them up, they get really short. And when we're not angry, our noses get longer. And so that um, Hebrew, erekapeim, actually originally meant long in the nostril. So Yahweh introduces himself as long in the nostril. So that means he's got a not angry face. He's got a long nose. Um, and then obviously we've kind of better translated that into slow to anger. But I thought that's just worth knowing that he says, I am long in the nostril. So there's kind of two parts to uh, this message today. And the first is that Yahweh is slow to anger. So we're going to have a look at some examples in the Bible where we see Yahweh taking a really, really long time to get angry. But then the other side of it, the other message is that Yahweh is slow to anger. And we are going to see how he gets angry and why he gets angry and why it's important that we know he does get angry. So we're going to jump around the Bible. If you've got Bibles with you, have them out. If you've got Bible on your phone, have it, ha- have it out, have it open. I will try to remember to pause so that you can find the passage, because I think it's really good if we're kind of tracking with it, if we can do that. But if I go too fast, just um, give me a shout out, and we can just pause and make sure we've all found it. So we're going to start by going back to the city of Nineveh. Um, We only just recently did Nineveh in our Jonah series, so I think everyone will be familiar with the story by now. Um, But just to recap, Jonah was sent to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was a very oppressive, a a violent city, a terrible city. And Jonah was sent by God with this message, 40 more days and Nineveh Nineveh will be overturned. And despite Jonah doing everything he could not to deliver the message, he did eventually deliver it and... um, they repented. The whole city of Nineveh repented, and then God relented, and he did not punish them. Incredible story. And the only person that was angry about this was Jonah, right? Because he was a miserable git, basically. And um, he, uh, he, was, he wanted to see them punished. But God said, no. Yahweh said, no, I'm not going to punish them. They've repented. But did you know that that is not the end of Nineveh? That is not the last time we see them in the Bible. They also uh, they make a reappearance 
in a small book called Nahum, which comes between Micah and... I've forgotten the other ones, but um, you'll find it in your Bibles, a small uh, minor prophet who speaks about Nineveh. And it happens 150 years later. This takes place 150 years later. Um, and we see in Nahum 2, verse 7, it is decreed that Nineveh be exiled and carried away. And so what happened was Nineveh very quickly went back to their old ways. What we saw in Jonah, where they repented and God relented and they weren't punished and they changed their ways, it didn't last very long. They very quickly slipped back into all their old ways. They were drawn back into the way they were living. And so 150 years later, they are back in exactly the same situation and God is calling them to change their ways and they have forgotten everything that they've learned. And so God finally shows his anger to them, and the whole city is destroyed, totally annihilated. There's not like a crumb left. There's not a chair left. The whole city is destroyed by the city of Babylon. That's what's interesting. It's not destroyed by this kind of freakish act of God. The city is destroyed by um, the Babylonian army that is um, a power that's further down south, and it's coming up. And it moves through and destroys the city. And just um, kind of as a little aside, this is what we call passive wrath. This is when Yahweh says, enough is enough. And he steps back. And in this instance, his judgment is him doing nothing. He could have stepped in. He could have protected Nineveh. He could have stopped this from happening. But Yahweh says, enough is enough. No more. And he lets this destruction happen. happen. And that's really, really valid that, that God saying no and stepping back and doing nothing, it can be his judgment. So Yahweh is slow to anger. We're not sure how long they were kind of this oppressive city before Jonah delivered the message, but let's say it was 50 years. And then they were finally destroyed 150 years after Jonah delivered the message. So that's 200 years of being oppressive, of being violent, of being horrendous. 200 years of Yahweh being compassionate and gracious and slow to anger until finally enough is enough. He is slow to anger. Um, A few years ago, Luke and I learned something called the Enneagram, which some of you will know about. Um, Some of you will be excited to hear about it, and some of you, like Paul Bryan over there, is like, oh, not the Enneagram. So if that's you, sorry, bear with me. I'm not going to, like, bore you with all the details, and some of you will have never heard of it. Um, So don't worry about that, but do read about it, because it's really good. Um, So I found out, we did this, like, two-day course to find out about the Enneagram. It's like a personality thing. There's nine different personality types. It's really complex and, like, deep and rich, so you learn a lot about yourself by doing it, and on all the different types of numbered, so that's all the the numbers up there. So the uh, instructor, who was called Karin, she was just talking through the different types, and she starts talking about the Enneagram Type 1, and she starts by saying, the Type 1 is an anger type. So straight away, I'm like, yeah, that's probably not me then. I'm not angry. I don't really get angry. Sometimes I get a bit annoyed, you know, when things don't go as I want them to go, and yeah, sometimes I experience frustration, but I don't, like, that's different to anger. I don't really get angry. And then Karin goes on to say, but ones would never say that they're angry, no. Ones would say, they sometimes feel a bit annoyed, or maybe they get frustrated. And I was like, oh no, this is so me. 
So anyway, what I'm trying to say is that I relate to anger. I understand anger. My friend Holly has this really good description um, of a one, of a type one on the Enneagram, where we're all like cool, calm, and collected at the front. But we've got this like pot of boiling water that's like simmering away, and the lid's about to pop off. And everyone else is like, are you okay? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, I'm fine. I'm totally fine. Everyone's like, I, I think you're not okay, though. <laughs> no, no, I'm fine. Nothing to see here. And then all it takes is one thing, and the lid pops off, and then I'm not okay. <laughs> Luke will know that. <laughs> Testify to that. So I get anger, and I've been on this journey of understanding when it's good to be angry and when it's helpful to be angry and how to process that well. So Yahweh's wrath in the Bible is spoken about over 600 times. So Yahweh is slow to anger, but we do see his anger. And one of the most um, memorable examples for me is in the book of Exodus. So if you want to find uh, the book of Exodus near the start, the story of Moses that we all know really well. And in this story, Pharaoh won't set the Israelites free. So Yahweh acts. He does something. As we know, um, he sends warnings to Pharaoh through Moses, set the people free, otherwise this will happen. And we see 10 crazy events happen, each one getting worse and worse and worse. Um, There's rivers that turn to blood. We see plagues of frogs, of lice, of flies, disease on livestock, mass disease, boils, horrendous boils on people, uh, hail and fire, locust darkness, and then finally, the death of all the firstborns in every family in Egypt. And I read that and I'm like, this is crazy. This is absolutely ridiculous. This is the God... I worship every day. This is the God who got on a cross and died for me. This is the same God that killed the firstborn in every family. Innocent children died because of him. How does that make sense? How does he do that? And again, just as an aside, this is active wrath. This is when God does something, like an actual act of God. He's stepping in and he's changing the direction of justice for his people. This is different to Nineveh, where he kind of said, enough is enough, I'm not doing anything anymore. This is him saying, enough is enough, I am going to act now. And he gave chances, and he gave warnings, and they didn't respond. And he said, enough is enough, this is going to happen. A few months ago, at the start of this year, about January, my eldest son, Morgan, got really into football. Well, he got into football last year because of the World Cup, but he really wanted to start having lessons um, and going to class. So we found him a local uh, football class, and he started going along. And the, um, the, the coach in charge of the class uses um, some methods that I haven't seen that often when teaching children. For example, he gets very cross with them. Um, he, um, <laughs> he can pause the game and, uh, and shout at them. I've seen Morgan uh, publicly humiliated because he did something wrong. Um, and it's been quite heartbreaking for me to watch this. I stay and watch the class, and, and I find it really, really difficult to watch, and I've been um, kind of hoping this builds resilience in Morgan, and this will like, teach him to be strong and teach him to have patience with people, but I'm sure you understand this is sometimes quite tricky. Um, 
But one day he came home from class, where, and Luke had been with him from his football class, and he, he said, that guy just makes me feel like trash. I don't want to go anymore. And something in me broke. And I said, enough is enough. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not going to sit there and watch this. So I phoned him up, and I told him. <laughs> I waited until the next morning so that I wasn't like full of rage. But I had a really, really good conversation where I told this guy some of the stuff I'd seen, some of the stuff that the other parents say about him on the sidelines. And I said, I just need you to be a little bit kinder. You know, just enough is enough. I'm not going to sit here every week watching you do this to my child. And it was really, really good. And he explained his side and his process and things like that. And we ended the conversation in a really, really good place. But that's my... I guess that's like my example of active wrath, where I've gone, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to sit and watch this happen anymore with my own child. I tried to think of an example of passive wrath, but I don't have any. <laughs> so anyway, back to our story about um, Pharaoh and Moses and all these awful things that happened. The context here, though, let's remember, was that the Israelites had been in Egypt for at least 200 years, maybe 400 years. And they'd moved there to settle uh, and to start families there. And uh, Pharaoh had felt threatened by the Israelites moving there. And so he had um, started this regime of, of kind of oppressing and then eventually slavery of the Israelites. So when we see God act in the ten plagues of Egypt, when we see that happen, it's been happening for between 200 and 400 years. This isn't like an impulsive decision to do this. And in Exodus 3, verse 7, it says, I have seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Because he heard the cries of his people, Yahweh responded, and he said, enough is enough. And he sends these 10 warnings. And Pharaoh keeps saying, yes, okay, I'll let them go. And then, no, he doesn't let them go over and over and over again until eventually Yahweh kills all the firstborn children. And we don't know how many that is. We don't, it doesn't even say children in the Bible. I think it says he killed the firstborn of every family. So maybe that's adults as well. Maybe that's every single family, the firstborn dies. So it would be tens of thousands of people dying that night. Yahweh is slow to anger, but when he ang gets angry, he really gets there. But these stories, they happened like 3,000 years ago, didn't they? They happened so long ago. They're Old Testament. They're before Jesus. Are they really relevant to us today? So I just want to like skip forward into the New Testament and have a look at a couple of examples from there. But first of all, can we just remember that um, Yahweh, the Old Testament Yahweh, is the same person as Jesus and is the same person as the Holy Spirit? It's not like in our family, I'm in charge of cooking and Luke's in charge of gardening, and we don't really interfere with each other's areas. And um, uh, I'm really good at planning ahead, and, and Luke's really good at kind of going with the flow when we need to, and that works for us. But that isn't the same with Yahweh and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. They haven't like divided up their responsibilities so that Yahweh is the kind of disciplinarian and Jesus is this like cool older brother and the Holy Spirit's like the tour guide on the bus showing us the way. It's not that that isn't how it is. It's the same person. So Jesus and Yahweh are the same person. They've got the same all those characteristics are true of Jesus. 
So we're going to have a look at Acts 5 now, verses 1 to 11. And this is the story, a very short story about Ananias and Sapphira. It was the uh, early church. The early church was growing. People were sharing everything they had and living in community. They put everything in so that everybody was equal. Nobody went without. And Ananias and Sapphira owned a piece of land that they sold. And they uh, went to give the money into, you know, to the shared pot. But they decided to keep some back for themselves. And they said, yes, this is everything we've got. But it wasn't. They were lying. And you'll see that Peter called Ananias out on that lie. And he said, no, you're lying. And you're not just lying to people. You are lying to God. And Ananias straight away hit the deck and died, just like that. And Sapphira, who wasn't there at the time, came back a few hours later, and Peter asked her, was that all the money? Did you give all the money? And she lied too. She said, yeah. And so she hit the deck as well and died straight away. Guys, this is the same wrath. This is the same Yahweh. This is the same thing that's happening. I'm going to like, doesn't tell us if Ananias and Sapphira have got like a track record of lying, but I'm going to put money on the fact that they did because Yahweh doesn't just like kill people for telling one lie. That wouldn't make sense. I'm going to guess that they have been in this situation many times, being called out, being called out time and time again, being discipled to make good choices and stop being deceitful. But Yahweh says, enough is enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. I don't know if this is active wrath, if God like sent a lightning bolt and killed them, or if this is like passive wrath where your, uh, Yahweh said enough is enough and maybe the scales fell off their eyes and they kind of were shocked at the horror of what they'd done and had a heart attack or something. I don't know. But it's still the same Yahweh that causes their death. Okay, I've got one more example. Are you with me? Is this okay? You're tracking. So... If I asked you, can you give me an example of when Jesus gets angry, what would you say? Did someone shout it out? Go on. In the temple. Yeah, in the temple, turning tables. Yeah. So I was really reluctant to use this example because it's really overused, isn't it? Like, it's whenever someone gets angry, someone else will go, it's okay to get angry. Jesus got angry. It's okay. Um, and I don't want to use it in that context. Um, so... Uh, let's just go give a bit of context to that story. Um, the temple establishment was totally corrupt, really, really corrupt. Um, and the way it worked was that people would walk for maybe four or five days and they'd bring a lamb to, um, to offer up to God. That was the, um, the Jewish custom. Okay? So these people would have walked miles and miles and miles. They'd have their lamb ready to do their offering. And then there'd be a guard on the gate of the temple, and they would say, oh, I'm sorry, your lamb's defective. Your lamb's not good enough. But don't worry, we've got some nice lambs here that you can buy. And then would uh, charge them an absolute fortune to buy a new lamb, even though they had a lamb that was perfectly fine. And the same thing happened with money. Some people would bring money for the offering, and they would turn up with their money, and the um, guard, the temple guard, would look at it and go, oh, I'm really sorry, we don't accept Roman money here. You can't use that. But don't worry, we've got temple money. You can exchange your money for an exorbitant rate. Okay, it's a bit like being at the airport. Like we all know, don't exchange money at the airport, right? So temple was the same. 
although don't take a lamb to an airport because something bad might happen. So this is the situation that's going on. Jesus has been going to temple for years and years and years since he was a small boy. He's been going for like 20 years, maybe 30 years. And he has been seeing this over and over and over again. And Jesus is gracious, and Jesus is compassionate, and Jesus is abounding in love. And he has spent all this time preaching a new way, trying to call people out of the way they've got stuck in. But today, on this day that we see in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts, and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Enough is enough, Jesus said. Enough is enough. This wasn't some spontaneous anger where he just kind of walked in, saw this happening, got angry. This is 20 or 30 years of build-up. 20 or 30 years of being gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. But Jesus got angry in the same way that Yahweh got angry. He said, no more. No more. I'm not putting up with this anymore. And this was a really stupid thing to do for Jesus. Because when you make an enemy of the temple, when you stand up to the temple like this, you're also making an enemy of the Romans. So it's kind of suicide what he's done here. He's laying down his life, though, for what he believes in. So where are we at? I think some of us might currently be living in fear of God's wrath. Like Particularly if you've had a really strict upbringing, really strict parents. You might have this kind of image of Yahweh as someone distant that looks down on you and throws punishments or something. My sister, I really hope she doesn't listen to this talk. I'm like 99% sure she won't, but just in case. Um, my sister tells her children this awful thing. You know um, when uh, a house has an alarm, it's got sensors in every room, and the light comes on when you move? My sister's told her children that is Father Christmas watching them, and when the light comes on, it's a warning to be good. Okay? Yeah. This is going to be some therapy later in life. <laughs> But I actually think, for some people, this is how you think of Yahweh. This is how you think of God. Like, up there watching you, little warnings to be good, to be good, to be good, little warnings. And so I guess the message for you is that Yahweh is slow to anger, and his heart breaks for his people, and he will do anything to pull you closer into his grace again and again and again. So could I just pause? And if that is you, I just want to pray for you, but I'm not going to ask you to put your hand up or anything. But if we could all close our eyes, and if that is you, then just open your hand or something to, to receive God's grace. Yahweh, thank you that you are slow to anger, that it takes years and years and years for you to get angry. And thank you that your grace is enough, that you are gracious and you are compassionate and you are bounding in love and you are slow to anger. And so I just pray for the people who this might be a thing for them, this might be an issue, this might be a barrier between them and you, that you would break down that barrier with love and compassion and grace. Amen. But then some of us might be needing to hear this other message, that God is slow to anger. So right now, there are 15,000 slaves in the UK. 
There are 600,000 people addicted to alcohol. There are over 4 million children living in poverty in the UK right now. This year, one in four people will be affected by mental health issues, ranging from anxiety and depression through to psychosis and suicidal thoughts. One in four people. There's probably about 40 of us in the room. 10 of us are going to be affected by mental health this year. These are our people. These are our people, guys, that are affected by these issues. These are our neighbours. These are our friends. These are our colleagues. These are our kids, friends, parents. These are the people we walk past in the street. There are people that are trapped in relationships, trapped in jobs, trapped by money because they don't have enough or maybe because they have such abounding money that that is a trapping in itself. My friend um, from school just got divorced because, and I found out it was an emotionally abusive relationship for 10 years. She was trapped in this relationship and I had no idea about it. I've got a friend that wakes up and every single morning the first thing she does is have a panic attack. She wakes up to a panic attack every single morning. This isn't okay. This isn't okay, is it? This is the stuff that I think Yahweh gets angry about. I don't feel qualified to comment on how Yahweh feels about these things, but I don't think he's over the moon about it. And I can only imagine that his heart is breaking for his people who are being oppressed in all sorts of different ways. I don't think he's angry with us for these things. And I definitely don't think if you struggle with mental health, he's angry with you. But he's angry at the mental health. He's angry at the issues. He says enough is enough. We desperately need Yahweh to get angry about these things. If Yahweh doesn't get angry about the people that are addicted, the people that are trapped, the slaves, mental health the friend who's stuck in a job that she or he hates, if Yahweh doesn't get angry about that, we're kind of screwed, we're kind of stuck, aren't we? Because we can't solve those problems on our own. Yeah, like, um, genuinely, therapy can help and community can really help and there's brilliant charities like IJM and AA that can really help. But ultimately, we need Yahweh to get angry and do something about this and say, enough is enough. What sort of father would he be if he didn't fight for us and fight for his people? So what is our part in this then? What can we do? I think all we can do is pray because God hears the cries of his people. He said that. The whole story of Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt was because Yahweh heard the cries of his people. And Yahweh responds to that. He responds to our cries, to our prayers, to us saying, this isn't okay. So what I'd really like us to do is to pray passionately for these people as a group now together. And then you might want to keep praying in the week, but that's up to you. But I just want to give a bit of time to that now. And the way that I think we can kind of lead into, like, how are we going to pray for this is, can you think of someone who needs your prayers? I don't imagine there's any of us that can't think of one person that is trapped in some way, stuck in some way, needs releasing in some way, needs Yahweh to get angry for them. So we're going to start by praying for that person. And then through that, we're going to pray for the wider issue. So I'm going to pray for my friend who got stuck in an abusive relationship. And then I'm going to pray for all the people that are stuck in abusive relationships. 
And if that you don't find that easy, if that's I'm not if you're thinking I'm not quite sure how to pray for that, there's some phrases that I've just written down. Yahweh, this isn't fair. Yahweh, we call on you to set people free, to end injustice, to fight for our people, to save the oppressed, to hear our cries, to break strongholds, to heal pain. So what we're going to do is get into small groups of probably just three or four, no more than that. We don't need to spend any time like talking about the issue or saying, this is my friend's sort of life story, but just say, this is what I'm praying for. And then go for it in prayer. And I don't want to tell anybody how to pray, but sometimes when we pray, we can kind of do it in this like head down, muttering kind of a way. And so my only request was that we get a little bit passionate about this today. I know that's not everyone's style, so if it's not your style, fine. You know, I'm not going to like come around monitoring how everyone's praying. But like, can we just give this a bit of a, a bit of a cry to God? Can we give this a bit of an oomph? Everyone in the room today is a regular G2 person. We don't have any visitors, which is sad in one way. But in another way, it means we can go for it. We don't need to worry about offending anyone or upsetting anyone. We can go for it in prayer. If you pray in tongues, pray in tongues. If you want to cry out, cry out. Is that okay? Can we do that? Okay, so we're going to put some music on. Just get yourself into small groups. Use these phrases if you want, and let's get praying.